0: and welcome to the Bunker USA. I'm your host, Alex Andreu. American democracy was never designed to be democratic, the Pulitzer Prize winning historian Louis Maynard wrote in the New Yorker recently. As the law stands, even when the system is working the way it's designed to work and everyone who is eligible to vote does vote, the government we get may not reflect the popular will. The 2016 election engraved this truth deep within Democrats' muscle memory. They got, to paraphrase Eric Morecambe, all the right votes, just not necessarily in the right order. So with the next U.S. presidential election a year away, both parties seem laser-focused on those few states and the counties within them that seemingly decide who gets to sit in the Oval Office. My guest today has written a book on bellwether states, He's the communications director for the University of Virginia Center for Politics and editor of its hugely influential newsletter. And his book, Bellwether, is the authority on this topic. Welcome to The Bunker, Kyle Kondik. Thanks for having me. So, Kyle, let's start with the very basics. What is a bellwether state?
1: So the way that I define it, and I think others would define it too, is a state or a place that not only votes for the winning presidential candidate very often or always Um, but also is highly reflective of the national popular vote for president. So, you know, you'd expect a a bellwether state, you know, in the context of the 2020 election uh, to have voted for Joe Biden by about four to five points, which is what he won Mm. uh, the national popular vote by nationally. Interestingly, though, there actually was not a state that did that. Um, The state that was was closest was Michigan. But historically, Ohio – had been in that bellwether position for decades, and now all of a sudden is not.
0: I mean, the maxim for over a century, about a hundred years ago, used to be as Maine goes, so goes the nation. Um, That is clearly not the case anymore. We we would have had a, a Democrat president for the last 30 years. So how have bellwether states changed over time?
1: Yeah. So if you look at the sort of broad sweep of American history, you know, if you particularly you go back to like the post-Civil War period. So our current two party system, you know, Democrats, and Republicans, it goes back to right before the Civil War, the Republican Party emerged in the 1850s um, from the ashes of the old Whig Party. The Democrats can go back even further. Um, you could say to Andrew Jackson, or even really to Thomas Jefferson. And so, anyway, you've got this sort of long history going back to about the time of the Civil War with the the, the, two, the two parties. And um, you know, after the Civil War, our elections kind of look like the Civil War, and that the South was very Democratic, much of the North was very Republican, and the states that were bellwethers or key battlegrounds, um, a, a number of them were states that had sort of both northern and southern elements. And so, Ohio fit that category. Um, Indiana in the Midwest, Illinois in the Midwest, Missouri, um, those states all had decent track records. And as you get into the 20th century, you know Illinois, Missouri, uh, Ohio continue to be those kinds of states. In more recent times, uh, Illinois trended to become more democratic in large part because Chicago became very democratic and so did its uh, – Suburban counties, um, which sort of pushed it more toward the left. Uh, and then Missouri uh, fell away from being a bellwether, too, uh, in large part because its uh, big blue urban areas, uh, St. Louis and Kansas City, um, began began to just be swamped by the rest of the state, which is relatively small and mm. rural, and where the Democrats have lost ground in recent years. And really the same thing kind of happened in Ohio more recently, particularly when Donald Trump became the leader of the Republican Party, in that, Democrats used to kind of punch above their weight with, uh, you know, white voters who don't have a four-year college degree in, sta- in states like Ohio and many other places in the north. And Trump turned that group uh, into being even more Republican than they were previously. I mm-hmm. vote you know, voted for Trump in 2016 and in 2020. So technically voted for the winner in 2016, but Trump won Ohio by eight points. Uh, he lost the national popular vote by two. Uh, so that's like a 10-point marginal difference. And then that margin expanded a little bit in 2020 as Trump was losing the Electoral College. Um. So that was the first time Ohio did not vote for the Electoral College winner uh, since 1960. Um, in John F. Kennedy's election, Ohio voted for Nixon. Uh, but, you know, I think that Ohio shed its bellwether label really in 2016.
0: So the, the long answer is it's complicated. Um, if I were to press you for a short answer... What states would you currently list as bellwether states looking forward to the next election? I
1: mean, honestly, I don't think there really is a great one. Michigan is is probably the best answer to that question. Um, mm. But again, there's not at this particular juncture, there's not a there's not a state that has a uh, a great hold on that title.
0: Yeah, I mean, Maine held that title because for weather-related reasons, as I understand it, it used to actually vote earlier than other states. So a a bellwether would predict rather than decide the, the election. Have those two concepts merged over the years? Do we now mean states that both predict and decide the election? Um, Well, you know, you you would think
1: that the states that were most reflective of the national popular vote would also be the ones that in a close election would end up deciding it. You know, one of the Mm -hmm. things I looked at was, you know, even in a in like a, you know, let's say there's like a 10 point margin of the popular vote. You know, that's not going to be a particularly close election in the Electoral College either. But you can look at the states and say, well, which ones voted for the winner by about 10 points and that that those are kind of bellwethers in that election because they reflected the national vote we don't have a dynamic like we had in you know the, the old days with maine where it's like a state would vote early and the results would tell you a little bit something about the uh about the election to come you know everybody votes at the same time um for
0: president mm. do the demographics point to more shifting to come i i can't help but think and this is probably an erroneous impression because i am a foreigner looking in but it feels to me like for about 20 years florida was always in the in the center of things of deciding elections and recently it's georgia and nevada that are always in the mix are we seeing a shift
1: Yeah. I mean, look, the the key states in the Electoral College do change over time. What was interesting about Ohio is that it really was very important for a very long time. But there's constant churn in the electorate. And again, Trump kind of helped change the demographics of the two parties, although some of the changes were happening before Trump even even emerged. But, um, you know, you think about like I think Georgia and Arizona and Nevada are going to continue to be important And also, you know, the key states in the industrial north, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, you know, those are the states that um, were so reliable for Democrats for a couple decades, although they oftentimes had very close margins, except really when Obama was on Mm -hmm. the ballot. But, you know, they continue to be important. You know, in the last election you only had seven states decided by less than three points. So those were the kind of the big prize in that election. Biden won six of the seven. The one exception was North Carolina. But those states are Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, and Nevada, and sort of the, the Sun Belt, as we call it. And then, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, in the Rust Belt, or the, the Industrial mm-hmm. North. And, you know, as you look at the 2024, you know, those are the states I think that are probably the likeliest to be decisive in that election. Um, you know, it's also, we're also in a period where, Um, Five of the last six presidential elections have really been quite competitive. Uh, The only one that wasn't was uh, Obama in 2008. He won by a little more than seven points nationally, which is like kind of a blowout in in American political terms. Um, But, you know, one of these days, I mean, with the 20th century, there was a ton. There were presidential blowouts all the time, really. Uh, You know, one of these days, someone's going to crack the code and win a bigger national victory. But I don't know what that would look like and, you know, when that might Mm. be on the horizon. But we're in a very
0: competitive era right now. So, Kyle, can you talk me through the adjacent concept, I guess, if we're talking about key states, there's also the middle voter and and how how has that shifted over time and how it ties into
1: yeah so so this is sort of the concept of like what's the profile of um the people who are sort of at the middle of the electorate the people who end up deciding elections um when you think about like people people's ideological identification it's pretty easy to just sort of look at them on a like left to right scale and you know plot people hmm. there but i think a more interesting way of doing it is to plot them based on their opinions on More of like in more of like quadrants. And so there's a there's a economic liberalism and social and and conservative score and then a cultural score. There are a lot of people who are basically socially conservative um, and are economically maybe liberal or moderate. And Trump had more appeal to those people than previous Republican candidates had. And so I think of those kinds of voters as being um, important. You know, there are also a lot of Americans who identify as independents. They don't identify with one of the two major parties. Um, But also a lot of those people, if you really push them and said, well, you may think of yourself as independent, but do you back, uh, you know, one party more consistently over the other? Most of those people do. There are true independents out there But they're lower turnout and they don't pay as much attention to politics as hard partisans do. You know, those are arguably the most important voters, but they're also the hardest to mobilize. In some of the research that's been done, it seems like in this particular election, if in fact it's Joe Biden versus Donald Trump again, we know that both Trump and Biden have pretty weak favorability slash approval. So they're both at about 40 percent favorability uh, and they're both over 50% in terms of unfavorability. That means by definition, there are people out there who hold negative views of both candidates. Those yeah, are the people yeah. who are probably going to decide the election. And what we know about the research from them is that they they actually skew a little bit more to the right on a lot of things, but they also um really did not like what happened on January 6 2021, the storming of the Capitol, and Trump's just sort of general kind of irresponsibility. Uh, and so those people are going to be cross pressured in different ways. To the extent that there are people who vote third party for president, you'd also expect the bulk of them to come from that block who dislikes both major party mm, candidates.
0: Mm, mm. Um, I remember reading a, a piece that was a sort of um, it was a sort of road trip of Trump country after the twenty sixteen election, and it, it it put forward the idea that Trump supporters could be described as people who dislike what they call words people. Could it actually be as simple as that? Does it, does it come down to manual work versus brain work? Does it come down to perceptions of education and how that links to their notion of belonging Is there actually a much clearer division there that demographic science simply finds it difficult to define?
1: Yeah, I think there's like a kind of an anti-elite, anti-establishment sensibility out there that I think Trump was had had a a fair amount of appeal to. Um, There was something kind of uh, anti-elite and hardscrabble about Trump, even though that's not actually what his profile is. But he was able to sort of convey that. And, you know, there's, there's this regional dynamic, too, in which you have a lot of places that were sort of smaller to medium-sized cities um, or even rural areas who maybe don't like big cities and are probably less racially diverse than, than big city areas, probably have lower levels of four-year college attainment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that in a country where you had a lot of trust of leaders, uh, a lot of trust in big institutions, I don't think a candidate like Trump would have been able to win. But I think in this sort of environment, um, he was
0: able to capitalize on those sorts of things. Mm. It's interesting you should say that, because I was looking at 2020, and Donald Trump won a record 16 bellwether counties, but still lost. And that maybe feeds into that conspiracy. Is there a danger that actually those bellwether counties? counties, and because, I mean, in the era of micro-targeting, it, it's probably not right to talk in terms of states anymore, you know, uh, basically electoral strategies now know which counties and which even neighbourhoods within counties actually decide those states. So uh, is it possible that by looking at those, strategists can get a really bum steer of ha- of the prospects of their candidate.
1: Well, so I think that what happened, you know, is that is and you could say this about Ohio, you could say that about the bellwether county stat that Trump often cites as sort of mm. evidence the election was was stolen from him. But the thing is, is that a lot of those places that had historically been bellwether counties are also places that were pretty demographically friendly to the the new Trump era GOP, and so that sort of knocked knocked Ohio off its axis and knocked those counties off its axis. So again, it's cited as some sort of evidence of conspiracy, but I think there's a pretty good basic explanation for it. It's just that those places were a pretty good reflection of the American electorate for a given time, and they stopped being that in, in 2016. There was a famous study of uh, bellwether counties and places done several decades ago, and they basically suggested that in the longer term, they, they're, they're not consistently predictive of the future. And I think that's what we've seen with, um, with a state like Ohio that, again, voted at the center of the American electorate for decades. But then eventually it just stops for one reason or the other.
0: Okay, so having gotten all those caveats out of the way, looking at a rematch between Trump and Biden and the polling in those key areas, which way are they currently leaning? And like I said, with a heavy dose of um, caveats and pinch of salt, um, w- what are they telling us right now? Yeah, the current polls basically
1: suggest that the election nationally is tied. You know, polls are not particularly predictive this far out from an election. I also think it's, you know, one dynamic we've seen in polling is that non-white Americans, um, black Americans, Asian Americans, Latino Americans, et cetera, um, that, you know, that's that group as a block and it doesn't, it's not, it's not really a a block. There's a lot of differences demographically within that group, but like that group is generally more democratic leaning, particularly black Americans, which is like a 90, 10 democratic demographic. Um, But there's been some erosion for Democrats amongst that group in recent years. And that's shown in the current polling. Whereas Biden is basically doing as well with white voters as he did in 2020. Mm. Um, And so what, what could be the upshot here is that, that actually might not hurt Trump or Biden all that much in the industrial North, which is wider than the nation as a whole. Um, But maybe it hurts in some of the more diverse places um, that have trended democratic recently, like maybe a Georgia or an Arizona. Mm. Um, And I mentioned earlier, some, there's been some looks at the people who are probably going to be cross pressure in this election who hold negative views of both Trump and Biden. As I read the data, I think on, by and large, those people are, probably a little bit likelier to vote for Biden than to vote for Trump. But I think much is uncertain about that. I think Biden would be a would start as sort of a small favorite in a rematch with Trump. But I would not describe it as some sort of like slam dunk for him. You know, part of what happened in 2016, which is actually probably the better comparison for this potential election than than Biden Trump in 2020 was because um, Biden and Trump both had better numbers in terms of favorability in 2020 than they do now. Clinton versus Trump in 2016, they both had very weak numbers, like like Trump and Biden. And there were a lot of cross-pressured voters in that election, and they broke toward Trump, I think, in part because he was the challenger. And also because in the sort of seesaw and game of musical chairs in that election, um, some of Clinton's problems seem to be sort of more at the forefront when the Mm. election actually happened. Mm. But I think it's more like 2016. And again, I think Biden probably has a little bit of an edge there, but not
0: definitive. Mm. I mean, the interesting thing is that when you drill down, like I was looking at a a, a, a long study that Washington Post did into Door County, Wisconsin, which they say has predicted every president for over two decades. And what emerges is that voters there don't like either um, Biden or Trump. Is there still a chance that someone else might emerge on as a candidate on either side or do you think are we locked in for a biden versus trump trump rematch now
1: um you know it's possible i mean trump does have a bunch of you know well-credentialed opponents just just that he's leading by a lot right now but maybe something upsets that between now and when the voting starts in mid-january in iowa you know for biden i don't think biden is capable of being defeated by his current challengers uh basically two fringe candidates marianne williamson um, who's like a self-help guru, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son of uh, former Senator Bobby Kennedy, who was assassinated in the late 1960s. Kennedy is basically known for vaccine skepticism, I'd say, most prominently. And he's sort of running this gadfly candidate who is basically more liked by Republicans than Democrats in his kind of quixotic presidential Mm. bid. But with two candidates of advanced age, Trump has a lot of legal problems. Um, Who knows if Biden, if something might happen to Biden, or maybe he drops out. So you just, you just don't, quite no. I mean, it seems like all of the data points so strongly to Biden versus Trump again that you just wonder if something happens that will upset that. Yeah. If you look at like the middle of the last century um, and into like the 1960s and 1970s, when you did have close elections, not only was the national popular vote close, but a lot of the states were close too, including almost all of the big states. Uh, And so of the total amount of electoral votes available, you had like two thirds to three quarters of them voting relatively close to how the nation voted. It's more common for the national popular vote to be close than it used to be. uh, But you only have like maybe a third of the electoral votes sort of available in the middle of the um, electorate. And so you got to think that would have some sort of demobilizing effect on people in Mm. strongly red or strongly blue states. Uh, you know, the electoral college is written into the constitution and the constitution is very difficult to amend. Um, there is some effort to try to create this interstate compact that would kind of go around the electoral college winner. I don't, I think even if that came into effect, there, there would be legal questions and whatnot. So we've got this sort of a uh, democracy in which like it, on one hand, you could say that the number of people eligible to vote has expanded. The options to vote have expanded over the course of American history. You know, Early and absentee voting have become much more prominent in recent years, um, partially because of the pandemic, partially just because there's demand for it. And yet, in deciding the most important office, a lot of people basically don't have much of a say.
0: You know, At a gut level, it just doesn't seem fair. And, but that's the that's the system that we have. I guess what I'm asking is whether that pushes against the seams of federalism in, in a way, you know, or whether, I mean, how long will a state with just giant GDP like California, say, would they put up with another Trump presidency or would Texas put up with a, Another Biden presidency. And I'm not talking necessarily about full on cessation here, but I'm talking about increasingly ignoring the federal government, rebelling against the federal government and just breaking down the, the cohesion of the federal structure.
1: I mean, I think the things you bring up are, you know, notable, uh, and I, I think are, you know, that you do see some pushback against the federal government from, you know, state attorneys general and that sort of thing. Again, that's a that's a far cry from secession, but there's, you know, there's there's certainly disagreements between the Republican government in Texas and the Democratic federal government about what to do about the border, and, and I do think there's just sort of this. Disenfranchising kind of problem. I mean, look, they're they're always going to be in a closely divided country. There are always going to be people who like the administration and don't like the administration. But it, it it's just a, a a divisiveness that seems to you know maybe it's not necessarily getting worse because it's been bad for a while. But I don't necessarily know if it's getting better either. Um, And you know that that was sort of when we did have the American Civil War. You know, part of. What went into it was this sort of idea that the South just wasn't going to follow what the federal government was trying to do, particularly after Lincoln got elected. That sort of thing you're talking about was a was a contributor to like past strife mm-hmm. in the United States.
0: Kyle Kondik, thank you so much for throwing some light on this really complicated subject. I feel much smarter than I did 20 minutes ago.
1: Thanks for having me
0: remember there's a new bunker pretty much every day so if you like our work you can and should support our work on the funding platform patreon for as little as three pounds a month just search for bunker podcast patreon i leave you with the splendid words of playwright tom stoppard it's not the voting that's democracy it's the counting this is Alexandro in the bunker saying over and out I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's oh god, what now? With me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Bear, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann, Ramirez. Out now wherever you get your podcasts. The bunker was presented by Alex and produced by Chris Jones. Assistant producer is Adam Wright. Audio producer, Robin Lebone. Art by Jim Parrott, music by Kenny Dickinson, managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.